So take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18. We will continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel tonight. We will not spend three weeks on chapter 18. Just one week. Yep. Boo. Thanks, John. Yeah. I'm told that newfound fame can be something of both a blessing and a curse. If you're like most Americans, we love our women's Olympic gymnastic team, right? Did anybody love watching the women's gymnastics during the Olympics? Sorry, we, we Americans, we love our women's gymnastic, gymnastics, except for Terry, one week a year, right? And we always like to watch during the, during the Olympic trials who the next American darlings are, are going to be. And this year, or this past year, 2016, was a great year for American gymnastics. Simon Biles, or Simone Biles, right? Simone. I'm obviously a huge fan. Well, she became the most decorated gymnast in American history after this past summer's Olympic Games. She totally dominated. Out of, I think, five or six events, she took home four gold medals, including the coveted all-around, the vault, the floor, and then as well as the team gold medal. And then she went home with a bronze for the balance beam. And in doing so, became the most decorated American gymnast in history. Even before she found fame in the Olympics, Biles was, uh, was a champion, a world champion, and she had some fame, but she had no idea how much the Olympics would change her life. Within a matter of just a few weeks, she became a multimillionaire through endorsements and, and prize money. She got to go to the White House and was brought on all the morning talk shows. And, and she, she said that she would go places and she would be met by crying girls, just amazed that they would get to, to see her. Um, but as many famous figures often report... The public spotlight is a very mixed blessing. Biles says that she became totally overwhelmed about all the attention and has spoken that that is very strange and disconcerting to have your privacy slip away and for your life to, to take a new course, one that you don't feel like you have much control over. You see, fame can be a blessing and a curse. Well, David's victory over Goliath was something like that. David was suddenly thrust from the privacy of the pasture to the spotlight before all of Israel. Now he has fame. Now he has, as we'll see tonight, adoring fans. He had groupies, right? He had riches. He had new responsibility. And he also had some new enemies, David's sudden fame would bring about a host of of new blessings as well as new dangers and new challenges. And of course, if you know his story, new temptations. Well, tonight we come to 1 Samuel chapter 18 where we're going to continue following this divine meteoric rise of David. This, the king in waiting that was selected especially by God. The text before us tonight is very full. It's packed with all sorts of interesting themes, themes of friendship, 
love, jealousy, hatred, murder plots. But through all of that, and we could talk about many of those things, through all of that, the main point that emerges from our text tonight, I believe, is this. The Lord is committed to exalting David, his anointed one. And no matter what Satan and his slimy serpents may try to do, nothing can stop Yahweh from placing his king on the throne. Nothing can stop Yahweh. And the key question for us, and really for all of humanity, is this. How will you respond to the Lord's anointed? We'll see a picture of two different types of responses. So the question for us is, how will we respond? We begin by considering the most famous, perhaps the the best-known friendship in the Bible. I'm going to read this text in sections tonight. So let's start with the first five verses. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants." Before we go any further, let's go to the Lord and ask for help. Father, I have far greater hopes and expectations for tonight than I could ever accomplish. My knowledge and skills are so limited, but you're boundless. So Father, would you miraculously work among us? We, we want your spirit to move. Would you please move among us tonight? Help us to see your beauty with new clarity. Help us to feel the danger of sin and hate it freshly. Give us new desires to love one another and to hope in Christ. So to that end, Lord, I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Let only your word remain and let it bear fruit in our lives, we pray. Amen. Well, there are a couple of interesting facts in this account that clue us into the fact that this friendship, the friendship with Jonathan and David, was not any ordinary friendship, right? These were not just good bros. The author goes way out of the way to make this point. And if you read the text carefully, you can pick up on some of these things. We're told from the moment that Jonathan heard David, his soul was knit to the soul of David. And the text says Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, that's not language that I use with my buddies. If you read the Bible much, that's not often language that is used uh, to describe male relationships, which has actually led some people to, rather carelessly, I believe, claim that this is describing homosexual love. 
I feel like I don't even want to dignify this with this comment, but in this day and age, I feel the need to to mention this. The Torah, the law, clearly forbade homosexual relations. One place is Leviticus 18.22. It was very clear, and it was punishable by death. And since the king was required to carefully follow the Torah, and the whole reason that David's brought into the situation anyways is we need someone to follow the Torah, and since the author of Samuel is not shy about condemning David for sexual behavior, it seems to me silly or absurd to suggest that this love between David and Jonathan would be homosexual love. It is, in fact, contrary to some belief, it is possible for men to enjoy rich, meaningful friendships, and they are a gift from God. And I praise God for those whom he's given to me. And this is especially true for men who are in battle together, as David and Jonathan were. Instead of homosexual love, the word knit here is describing a strange, really unexpected unity between these two men. I say unexpected because if you will think about it, if you remember, Jonathan had every reason to hate and fear David, right? I mean, think about it. Jonathan was the prince, the heir to the throne. He was next in line. He was also a war hero. If anybody had legitimate reasons for resentment or paranoia or jealousy, who would it be? It would be Jonathan. I mean, Jonathan is the heir to the throne. We often forget that Jonathan was probably 30 years older than our teenage David. He's quite a bit older. He, his, his battle career had extended beyond David's life, which makes this relationship even more peculiar. The text says that Jonathan loved David. In fact, we read six different times in this chapter. We're going to read about somebody who loves David. When you're reading the Bible, pay attention for repetition. Okay? Not the repetition of and or he, but like of key words. It helps clue you in to what's going on. Six times we read about someone loving David which I believe is the indirect response to people responding to the fact that God was blessing David, his anointed. It was in response. It was a part of the grace and the favor that God was showing him. And so, but here we see Jonathan, who had every reason to hate David, we see him loving David. So much so that he made a covenant, which we'll hear about a little bit later. It was an intense relationship. And I want to draw your attention here to verse 4. Here we read about how Jonathan took off his robe and he took off his armor and he gave it to David. Now, if you remember, if we don't just plop into the verse and just read this and bring in your cultural prejudices, right? If we remember a little bit, the robe symbolized something. Do you remember back in chapter 15 that the robe symbolized the kingdom? You remember the incident where Saul was reaching out and trying to grab a hold of Samuel and he rips his, his robe and Samuel basically says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And he's given it to your neighbor who is better than you. You see, unlike Saul, Jonathan is, he's not grasping at the robe. He's not ripping it off. He's taking it off himself and he's giving it to David. I believe that Jonathan was very clearly, symbolically giving up his royal rights. We see that also he gave him his armor, his royal armor. 
He's giving up his legitimate claim to the throne and he's transferring them to David. I believe that God miraculously opened Jonathan's eyes and he softened his heart to see beyond outward appearances and to recognize that God was doing something with Israel and he was doing it through David. So what did Jonathan do? He humbly submitted. He humbly submitted. We shouldn't fly past this, right? They should have been rivals. But by God's grace, they were friends of the highest order. Now we'll apply this more later, but let's pause for a little bit of of application now. I can't help but think about how the gospel, unlike anything else in the world, tears down dividing walls and brings unity to people who would have no earthly reason for friendship. That's what I love about the church. Think about the relationships you have here. Even looking around the room, why else would we all be together? Why else would we have meaningful friendships and genuine love for one another? We recognize that Christ did this, and it's only going to get better and better and better. And it's going to last forever. He purchased our unity. We should remember that in God's kingdom, there is no room for racism of any variety. No room for rivalry, jealousy, bitterness, factions, gossip, backdoor criticism. You see, the gospel doesn't give us an option of who we can love. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He has brought us together. But I'm also inclined to take note of how startling Jonathan's example of humility is. It's not just that they get along, but here we see Jonathan willingly, voluntarily giving up his legitimate rights. Legitimate rights for the glory of another. And as we know, it's for the sake of God's kingdom. Jonathan was willing and even happy to take second place or third place or last place in the kingdom. He was happy to see someone more gifted, more successful, more praised. Because Jonathan wasn't living for the kingdom of Jonathan. He wasn't living for the kingdom of self. He was living for the kingdom of God. If you think about your life and your ministry and the things that occupy your thoughts and the dynamics of your relationships, how often do we envy the blessings of others, particularly the gifts or the privileges or the callings of others, even in the name of ministry? Instead of being concerned for the advance of God's kingdom, we may quietly grumble that we're not in the spotlight. There'll be more on this later, but for now, let me ask you this question. How much do you really long to see the advancement of the kingdom of God? I mean, how much do you really want to see it go forward? Do you pray about the kingdom in other places? What if God's kingdom advanced, but it wasn't here? It was down the road at Mount Zion. What if it was in a black church? What if we saw the church in China exploding, which in fact we are? Did you know that there are more Christians in China than there are in Europe now? A hundred million Christians in China. 
Are you more zealous for the kingdom of God or are you like James and John jockeying for your seat at the table? Jonathan models for us how we are to respond to the Lord's anointed. Not with a spirit of rivalry, but with a spirit of love, devotion, and submission. We'll come back to that later. But not everyone feels the way Jonathan does. Oh, King Saul. Here in the first five verses, we also see Saul positioning David so that he can keep an eye on him. He must have read, never mind. Even Saul can't deny David's success, and so he makes him a commander. Over verse 5, it says, over men of war. And the text says once again, and this is another major refrain in this chapter, that David is successful wherever he went. Wherever Saul sent him, David was successful. But let's pick up the story here in verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel. This is a female parade, okay? With singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, maybe on their feet, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and as Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. There are a couple of scenes here that grab our attention. First of all, we see David enjoying a hero's welcome into, into the city. This is illustrating, I believe, another one of the ways that David was enjoying success that was granted from God. God was giving him favor in the eyes of the people. And we see a pattern beginning to, to develop. Not only does David, not only does Jonathan love David, but all of the women of Israel, I'm assuming representing the people, right? All of the people of Israel love David. His popularity is celebrated with this little ditty. Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, I don't think that the people were trying to get after Saul. I don't think they were really putting him down. They, they did actually mention him first. But now the people are celebrating and comparing David and Saul together. And as we know, even though Saul is tall, he's kind of insecure. And here we see David actually doing what kings are supposed to do. He's doing what Saul should have done. He's actually defeating their enemies. David, the boy king in waiting, is already turning out to be a better king than Saul. And he doesn't even have his own weapons. This is way too much for the kingly baggage dweller. And so surely Saul is having these flashbacks to his own parade back in chapter 10 where the people were greeting him. They had their marching band out for Saul, not David. So Saul's response to David was totally different. Could not have been more different than Jonathan's response. Verses 8 and 9 describe Saul's pitiful, dark jealousy. And then with words that are saying much more, I think, than Saul could have realized, he said, what more can he have but the kingdom? 
Well, we know that's exactly where things are headed. Back in chapter 15, verse 28, God specifically told Saul, I am taking the kingdom from you and I'm going to give it to your neighbor and he's better than you. He's better than you. So Saul was paranoid. So all of this reception so far from, from Jonathan and from the, from the women of Israel, this is all part of the covenant favor that the Lord is showing to David. And Saul was not in on that, and so he eyed him with suspicion from now on. But he didn't just eye him, he tried to do something about it. We actually see three different plots, three different attempts that he makes in this chapter to destroy David. The first is openly violent and about as subtle as a gunshot. It's hostile, right? The text says God sent a harmful spirit in verse 10. We'll talk about that some other time. (laughs) God sent a harmful spirit upon Saul while David was playing the lyre. Saul chucked a spear at him and tried to pin David to the wall. Okay, we cannot miss what's happening here. Saul is in the spiritual lineage of who? Goliath. We just saw another tall guy chucking a spear at David, right? Or at least he had the spear in his hand. David has a lyre in his hand, and Saul has a spear in his hand, and it's aimed at, at David just like Goliath was. Saul is being serpent-like. He's trying to destroy the Lord's anointed. If you're following with us on Sunday nights, he's trying to destroy the seed of the woman, the blessing for all the nations of the world, and that's because he is of the seed of the serpent, clearly. But no weapon formed against David will prosper. So David eluded him twice. I picture it like this. I don't know. That's just how I picture it. You can picture it however you want. I guess he had two spears. Apparently Saul is so bad at war that he can't, he can't throw a spear across the room at a guy with a lyre. I mean, how bad is he? He's just a... He'd stick the luggage, Saul. I saw on Instagram a, a rock star who had uh, the real Louis Vuitton luggage and had Mickey Mouse on it, and I immediately thought, that's what Saul would have had. <laughs> right. David's quick on his feet, and it's not because David does a lot of calisthenics. The Lord is with David. Okay, let's, let's keep that in mind. Let's read verse 12, 12 through 16. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And here it is again. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had a great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But when all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him. Okay, did you see how many times were said, David is successful, David is successful. Everybody's amazed. David is successful. Everything he did, he was successful, right? Now, that includes him being demoted. I think he was demoted here. That's what it means from being over the men of war to the commander of thousands. I'm not sure, but either way, it doesn't matter because whether he was over all the men of war or a thousand men of war, David was successful. No matter where he went, he was successful because the Lord was with him. And so all of Israel and Judah loved him for it. Everyone except Saul. So plot number one failed, right? So Saul tries another plan. 
Apparently, there are other ways to arrange a funeral. If you can't spear the guy yourself, you can always try to get someone else to kill him. Let's look at verse 17. Then Saul says to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merab. I give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I, and who are my relations, my relatives, and my father's clan of Israel, that I should be a son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Methylite, for a wife. Okay, so Saul's idea here, it seems, is to give him his daughter, which he promised to give to whoever defeated Goliath, and he seems to be kind of slow on that. But he's going to give him his daughter as he, his daughter Merab. And the appeal here is that Saul will make David go fight for him as a bride price, okay? But something happens here, I'm not exactly sure. Either David refuses or Saul changes his mind, which I think is what it is. Um, because I think this parallels Laban and Jacob. But, but either way, David is not given uh, Merab as his wife. So technically, Saul's plan fails again. Perhaps Saul realizes he has a better option. On to plot number three. Look down at verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michal, we'll call her Michael, loved David, and they told Saul that the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commands his servant, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you. Right. And all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servant spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Verse 25. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price, except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. Okay, so here we read yet another person who loves David, the king's daughter. Michael loved David with the love of a woman. It's not the kind of love that Jonathan had, but her love is consistent with all the blessings that we're seeing, all the favor that David is receiving because of the hand of the Lord. Verse 21, we read why Saul is doing this. He, he's doing this so that she may be a snare to him and also that the Philistines would be against him. So Saul improves on his second plan, okay? Not only is he trying to get the Philistines to do his dirty work for him and kill David, but now he's angling on the romantic side of things. That word snare 
is the word that is used all throughout the Old Testament for how Israel would get trapped in idolatry. It's often connected with, with idol worship, often through marriage, intermarriage. And we actually, I think this is the case because in the next chapter, verse 13, we're going to read about uh, Michael's idol collection, which she put in, in the bed. So let's just pause here for a moment. Okay, now right now for us, David is looking pretty great. He's got the hero's afterglow of Goliath. He's doing all this great stuff in chapter 18. I mean, David is, he is he's the man. But the serpent, Saul, his plan here is uncanny. Think about it. First of all, we know that one day David will be ensnared by a woman. Secondly, to get out of his mess, he too will try to arrange the funeral of another man. So let's not get too enamored with David. Shouldn't we pause and see how God's providence works? He's weaving the story together. That's what I love about understanding the Bible as a unity. These are not isolated stories. And the authors couldn't have done this themselves because they were writing at different times and in different places, right? God is weaving his providence, his work together, and giving us glimpses into the future. But there's a strange price for this new bride, don't you think? Anyone can get lucky, Saul reasons, and kill Goliath with a stone, right? So how about we have him try with a hundred, right? Let's see if his luck will hold. And so instead of paying the bridal price, which David couldn't pay, shepherds didn't have a big salary, Saul trusts in the law of averages, and he asks David to kill a hundred Philistines. Now, if you remember back in 17, the way David spoke about the Philistines, he, he rebuked Goliath. He called him that, that uncircumcised Philistine. We won't go into that too much tonight, but notice that now Saul is, he's saying, okay, you were zealous against this to bring judgment on this one uncircumcised Philistine. How about the impossible task of killing and forcibly circumcising a hundred Philistines? Seems impossible. But the Lord is with David, and so David comes back with 200 Philistine foreskins. This is also not in my children's uh, story Bible. <laughs> I'll, I'll be sure to include it. Um, okay, so don't think about that gruesome bouquet. Instead, think about the statement that God is making, okay? You're thinking about it. Don't think about it. Think about the statement that God is making. It's like he's saying, I mean, because there's so much more going on behind the scene. This is not like, wow, David is great. This is something much bigger than that. God's like, a hundred? Ha! I'll see your hundred. I'll raise you another hundred. You honestly think you can outsmart, outsmart me, Saul? Friends, the Lord of hosts can take on all of the forces of evil with his hand behind his back and a cup of tea in the other hand. He doesn't need us. He's not intimidated. He's not worried about the culture war. He's not worried about our political systems. God laughs. He sits in the heavens and he laughs. Aren't you glad that we can be on his team? We must wait a little while. So here God is laughing at Saul. And so God blesses David. And we see once again Saul's scheme against David fail. 
I mean, just think about what's going on here. The text is giving total success to the Lord's anointed one. I mean, think about this. This is great. First of all, David just will not die, right? He just won't die. The problem, it's a problem that continues all throughout Saul's life. David is, he won't die, and he is successful in everything he does. Four times in this text, the author reminds us about how successful David is, all because the Lord is with him. And not only will this guy not die, and not only is he so successful, and not only did he take the king's daughter and marry her, but everybody loves him, right? This is the perfect storm for the insecure baggage dweller. Everyone loves him. His son, Jonathan, loves him. The people, his subjects love him. His daughter loves him. Everybody loves him. None of the schemes to destroy David work. Saul can't kill him. The Philistines can't kill him. And God can't even, and he can't even get him tripped up in sin. He can't even get him tripped up in, into the idolatry. And what's even worse is David's humble about all this from Saul's perspective, right? He's humble about this. The text highlights again and again how humble David is. All because the Lord is with him. Don't you see? This is all the providence of God. It does not matter what schemes the serpent devises. Nothing can stop the Lord. Yahweh will have his king on the throne. Now it seems that the serpent schemes get more sophisticated over time. But it doesn't matter. Nothing can stop the coming of the anointed one. And for us, that is cause for great hope. But this terrifies Saul, as it does all of his slithery brothers. Let's look down finally in chapter, uh, in verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had, all, had more success than all the servants of Saul. So that his name was highly esteemed. Saul knew what was going on. Right? It was, it was obvious to him. The Lord is with David and the Lord was not with him. And so the text says that he was afraid of David... And he became his lifelong enemy. There's so many things we could apply here. Let's, let's pause for some application. I'll just take a couple tracks. You can go home and apply this. Come up with other ways to apply it with whoever lives in your house. All throughout the text, Saul is pictured with this proud heart. He's jealous. He's darkened with sinful brooding and extreme jealousy. He's not like Jonathan. He's not like his son who willingly stepped aside to make way for the Lord's anointed. Saul tries to kill him. And David, or Jonathan, is willing to die for him. Saul saw all of David's victories as a threat to his personal kingdom. I mean, David was Saul's servant. They were all fought on his behalf. But Saul didn't see it like that because he was not concerned about the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, which is the kingdom of God, as come Sunday nights, we'll explain that. But he was concerned about the kingdom of Saul. That's what jealousy is. It's wicked, destructive concern for our own kingdoms. 
for our own names, for our own reputations, for our own place in the spotlight, for what other people say about us. It's hostility towards anything that we perceive to be a threat to our Babel-like endeavors, where we build our own kingdoms, working to build a name for ourselves. This can take all sorts of forms. I don't know what your particular variety of this is. I'm growing more aware of my varieties. But it can be all sorts of things. You can be envying other people's gifts. Despising them for their successes. Or you could be craving the praise of others. Devastated if people don't speak well of you or notice you or like your photos. Church, we should watch carefully against all the attitudes of the heart that are like this, and we need to keep our hearts closely in check. Saul is something of a caricature of the jealous man. We may not be quite as dark as Saul, and we may not be walking around the house with a sword ready to, or a spear ready to throw at our enemies, but can we not do the same thing in our homes with our words? Have you not seen in your own heart the times that you've nurtured evil, jealous, resentful thoughts? Which end up as words that are sharp as spears that you throw at your children, you throw at your wives, you speak behind people's backs. This story graphically illustrates the dynamic that our Lord explained in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember he makes the connection between jealousy and hate to what? To to murder. You see, if we're wise, if if we pay attention to our hearts, if we examine ourselves, then we will in turn work to mortify and to tame these thoughts while they're in their toddler form rather than waiting until they grow into their tall Saul-like form. Perhaps we could use a little proverb to illustrate this. It's not very poetic, but I tried. A tiger pup can be held and its claws easily cut, but a full-grown tiger cannot. It will go wild. As John Owen famously said, we must kill sin or it will be killing us. Do you take your sin seriously? It's so easy to look around and be like, oh, I'm not like Saul, but then foster those same thoughts in our hearts. Kill sin or it will be killing you. Many other applications, but let's turn, let's draw our attention to the big main points, the main meaning of this text. Let's be clear. The Lord is exalting his anointed one and nothing can stop him. It's a wonderful theme all throughout the Bible. We've seen this a lot. God sets up the odds where it looks impossible. Eh, I'll just part the water. Walk him through on dry ground. That hadn't been done before, right? Water from a rock, no problem. Let's have birds fall from the sky and they can eat bread fall from the sky. I mean, God sets it up to make himself look good because he is good. And we should see him as good. But we've seen, we've been seeing all throughout Samuel these great reversals. Just as Hannah's song in chapter 2 told us we would. And here in verse 23, David is making it clear that even though he's just received the king's welcome, he's not worth it. He's not, he's not worthy to become the king's son. He's a poor man with no reputation. Verse 23 shows that David still sees himself as being lightly esteemed. 
But by the time we get to verse 30, his name was highly esteemed. The exact word in the text. God was making David's name great. Come on Sunday night, we'll talk more about that. God making great names. David's, David was destined to become a great king. And it's all because the Lord was with him. Hannah's songs in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8 says, The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. Does that have more meaning now? (laughs) And inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he set the world. But we should notice that there are two responses to this king. Two responses to David. I think we should zoom back even further and realize there's only two categories of people in the world. Those who are for the kingdom of God and those who are against the kingdom of God. I don't care if you have a fish on your car. doesn't matter. Right? Those who are for the kingdom of God and those who are opposed to the kingdom of God. In response to David's rise, it was polarizing, even within King Saul's own house, which reminds us that it is impossible to adopt a neutral stance to King Jesus. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says these strange words, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Or if we put it more simply, as Jesus did in Matthew 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever is not with Jesus is against Jesus. For the last several centuries, we have lived in a culture where Christianity is mildly comfortable. It is acceptable. It is, and sometimes it has even been culturally advantageous. We see politicians peddling it. But as we know, that's changing. And in my judgment, and as the deacons talked about last night, I believe that that is the Lord's blessing. Because for far too long, American Christianity has been Christ without his cross, heaven without self-denial, grace without hating sin. It's been a savior without a Lord. None of that exists. None of that is real. That is not Christianity. You see, we in this text, we need to look past David, who's called the anointed one, to the anointed one. I mean, don't you see? Just like Jonathan and Saul illustrated, ultimately, there are only two ways to respond to the Lord's anointed. You either serve him, like Jonathan, or you try to kill him and oppose him, like Saul. Jonathan's friendship with David so beautifully illustrates how we are to respond to the Lord's anointed. Just like Jonathan did, we are to hand over our rights to the throne. We see this theme from the beginning. Do you remember how Adam and Eve got in sin? They wanted to rule. Here we see Jonathan handing over his rights to the throne. We need to give up our weapons, lay them down, and to commit to serve him and love him all the days of our life. Jonathan said, it said that Jonathan loved him as he loved his own soul. Friend, do you love the Lord? Do you serve him? 
Are you just trying to grab some of his goodies while you're building your own kingdom? Fence dwellers beware. Those who try to straddle the fence will be impaled. Just ask the rich young ruler. We must conclude by looking past David to the anointed one. David is called the anointed one, but he's anticipating the anointed one. Remember the word for anointed one is Messiah, right? I hope that'll make so much more sense of this. The Messiah. As we said, David will enjoy many successes. But in the end, David, the Messiah, will be ensnared by women. And just like Saul, he'll end up sending another man to fight in order to kill him. We must look past this anointed one to the anointed one, the better David. To Jesus, the man without sin who is able to take away the sins of David and the sins of you and me, my friends. And the sins of the world. You see, it's not enough to just sort of kind of like Jesus. It's not enough to admire him. It's not enough to go to church, right? That's just being like the crowds. And you'll certainly fail if you're like Saul trying to oppose him. You and I must see with eyes of faith that Jesus is the Messiah. He is not just the Messiah, not just the anointed one. He is the Christ, the living God. He's the son of David, the better son of David. And so we should respond like Jonathan did, by committing our lives over to him, by loving him and obeying him, and by most of all, stepping aside and letting him take the throne, fighting for him, serving him, handing over the reins of the kingdom, for there's only one king, and you're either with him or against him. Let's pray. Father, please help us see the world as you see it. Help us understand the economy of the kingdom. But I pray that for all of us who in so many ways, we, we, may be, we may be committed to your kingdom, but we're doing some side work, building little kingdoms for ourselves, and it's so pitiful. So Father, would you give us a zeal for your glory, like the zeal that David had before Goliath. And would you, would you teach us, would you teach us to lay down our lives for the sake of the kingdom, to consider your kingdom more precious than anything, that we would take up our crosses, instruments of death, and follow you. For those who would gain their life will lose it, yet those who lose their life for your sake will find it. Let us be among those who find it. We ask this in your name. Amen.